turning back into our series, within a series, on biblical womanhood. At the beginning of this year, I decided to devote a series of sermons confronting, to confronting the lies of, that our present culture is most apt to peddle, uh, lies which stand especially opposed to the foundational truths of the Christian worldview. We spoke about the nature of truth itself, how truth is objective rather than subjective, rooted in the mind and character of God rather than in the cultures and societies of man, and revealed in God's Word, the Bible, rather than in the emotions and experiences of human beings. And we spoke about the nature of man, how we are creatures and created to be God's image bearers and thus to be visible reflections of Him to the world. And we spoke about how God created us as His image bearers to be male and female, that contrary to the absurdity of transgenderism, gender is granted by the sovereign prerogative of our Creator, is rooted in our biology, a gift of God that reveals to us our identity and serves to highlight the goodness of our physical bodies as well as the glory of God's design for humanity to glorify Him in our distinctiveness as male and female. God intends to receive glory and honor and worship from the lives of His image bearers according to their distinctive design as male and female. Men can only glorify God as men by pressing into their masculinity and becoming more manly. And women can only glorify God as women by pressing into their femininity and becoming more womanly. And precisely because of that, we must answer the questions, well, what does it mean to be a man? What is biblical masculinity? And what does it mean to be a woman? What is biblical femininity? If men ought to look and speak and behave like men and not women, and if women ought to look and speak and behave like women and not men, well, what does the Bible say men behave like? What does it say that women behave like? And so that has brought us to a series on biblical manhood and womanhood. And in my studies on the matter, I've found that the Scriptures reveal no less than nine marks of each, nine marks of biblical manhood and nine marks of biblical womanhood. We worked through the marks of manhood over three sermons, which you can find on our website if you haven't heard them. Uh, I'll repeat those marks just briefly. We found that the Scriptures teach that a man is a leader, a lover, a provider, and a protector, that he is strong, sensible, dignified, sound in doctrine, and sound in speech. And then we've turned to a series of sermons on nine marks of biblical womanhood. And we've spent two sermons on three marks, which I'll review just briefly. The first of those marks of biblical womanhood was that the biblical woman is a helper. Genesis 2.18, Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God's design in creating the woman was to make him an equal and corresponding counterpart who could help him to walk in obedience to the calling that he has placed on man's life. Woman is designed to put herself at the disposal of another. 
yielding her gifts and strengths unto another's benefit. And we found that Scripture elsewhere calls this sort of helpfulness submission. A biblical woman submissively responds to the pattern of initiatives established and, uh, by mature masculinity in a way that honors and affirms rather than usurps and challenges his leadership. Two image bearers, equal in status and dignity before God, but with distinct roles, not as a product of the fall and the curse of sin, but as God's glorious, very good design for men and women from the beginning of creation. The husband leads, then his wife responds to his leadership in helpful submission. Second, we learn that not only is the biblical woman a helper, but she is also beautifully modest. We saw that there is an appropriate sense in which beauty is proper or inherent to womanhood in a way that's not quite analogous to manhood. 1 Peter 3 speaks of a woman's imperishable beauty. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. It's right for a woman to prepare herself so that she is dressed in an orderly, appropriate, put-together, beautiful way. There is an appropriate beauty that a woman displays. There is a sense in which the woman is the beautiful gender of the two and thus an appropriate sense in which she presents herself as lovely. There's something inherent to women that makes the pursuit of true beauty distinctly feminine. But women are not only beautiful, they are beautifully modest. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. We spoke about how when beauty is perverted by indiscretion and immodesty, it is corrupted into ugliness. So that which might be physically attractive becomes physically repulsive. We looked to Proverbs 11.22, which says, As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. When a woman indiscreetly flaunts her beauty, she dishonors God, she acts contrary to her own womanhood, she repels godly men, whom the Scripture says are attracted to the hidden person of the heart, the inner beauty that is chaste and respectful. And that led to a third mark of biblical womanhood, what the Scriptures say that inner beauty consists in, and that is, number three, that the biblical woman is quiet. She is marked by a beautiful, modest quietness of spirit that complements her role as a helper. And though that's sort of a jarring thing to say in our contemporary climate, it's explicitly biblical. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. He instructs women in 1 Corinthians 14, 13, or 34 and 35 to keep silent in the churches. And then in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, it says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. 
And so biblical women have a gentle spirit. They are humble and meek and patient. They are not pushy or assertive or demanding. They're amiable and not rough or brusque or abrasive, gentle and quiet. They are calm and peaceful and tranquil. A woman, a woman possessed of a quiet spirit carries herself so as to be a steadying influence on those around her rather than someone who engenders conflict. She calms a room rather than upsets it. She's not emotionally turbulent or boisterous or contentious, not harsh or abrasive or loud. She's peaceable, entreatable, and eager to forgive, more difficult to offend than to please. Biblical women are gentle and quiet. Their character, attitude, demeanor, and speech are marked by the inward imperishable beauty of gentleness and quietness. And so that's just a review of where we've been. If you want more on that, you can download the messages uh, over the last little while, the marks of biblical womanhood. But that brings us to this morning to a fourth mark of biblical womanhood, namely that a biblical woman is a homemaker, a homemaker. And I know that for some, that word tends to conjure images of the 1950s and Mayberry and a sort of sterilized golden age full of stereotypes, stereotypes that have often been manipulated into being demeaning to women. Along, things along the lines of, well, a woman's place is in the home, as if she is somehow out of line if she were to have a meaningful existence outside the house. Uh, but I don't intend to carry over all the baggage that is associated with certain connotations of the word homemaker. Uh, instead, I mean it more literally, more closely aligned with the denotative value of the word as we find it in Scripture. A biblical woman is a maker of the home the one who has the responsibility of directing all of her energy and creativity and love and strength toward making the home a pleasant environment in which the needs of her family can be cared for, in which discipleship flourishes, in which hospitality is practiced, and in which the Lord Jesus Christ is honored according to his word. And I want to consider this reality of the biblical woman as homemaker under two broad headings. And those are, number one, her domain, and number two, her duty. And we'll look to Scripture to instruct us on both of these. In the first place, a biblical woman's responsibility as a homemaker speaks to her domain. Her domain. This is the primary sphere of responsibility in which the Lord has placed the woman, the domain in which she is to direct her labors for the Lord's glory. And we see that from several passages. In the first place, consider Titus chapter 2. We've been to this passage several times in our series on manhood and womanhood because it has so much to say to men and to women in the church. And in verses 3 to 5 of Titus 2, Paul gives instruction concerning the conduct of older women. And he says in verse 3 that the older women are to be teaching what is good so that, the, so that they may train young women, verse 4, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. 
And it's that phrase that gets translated workers at home that concerns us for the present point. Women are to be workers at home. The Greek word is oikorgos, used only here in the New Testament, but its meaning is clear from the two words that are joined together to make up the compound word. Oikurgos comes from oikos, which means home or house, and ergon, which means to work or a work. She is to be a home worker, a worker in the house. The leading Greek dictionary gives a definition that you would expect. It means to be carrying out household duties or responsibilities, to be busy at home. When Paul instructs the older women in the church to disciple and train the younger women, he wants them to be trained to function well in their rightful domain, to be workers at home. We see a similar emphasis in 1 Timothy chapter 5. You can turn there to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And in verses 9 to 15, Paul is instructing Timothy about how the church is to serve widows. These women, having lost their husbands, have also lost their primary means of financial security. And Paul gives Timothy some guidelines for how the church can assess whether a widow's financial welfare is to be taken up by the generous support of her church family. And the principle seems to be that if a woman has lost her husband and is of an advanced age where she's not likely to remarry or care for a family, the church should step in and support her so long as her character is consistent with godliness. But if a widow is young enough to remarry and care for a family, she should pursue that course in which her needs will be met by her new husband rather than the church. And in that context... Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.14, Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. So if your husband has died, if you're young enough, pursue marriage, have babies, and, and, and the phrase that's important for our point here in this verse, keep house. The term is oikodespotane, another compound word, made up of the word oikos, house, and the verb despoteo, which along with the cognate noun despotes is where we get the English term despot. A despot in English is somebody who rules. In Greek, despotes doesn't bear that same connotation of tyranny or cruelty that despot does in English. It just means a master, a lord. It's a term that's used of the Lord God in several places throughout the scriptures. And so the woman is to be a master of her home. She is to get married, have kids, and manage a household. Now, it's true that the ultimate responsibility for managing one's household well falls to the husband, who is the spiritual leader of the home, 1 Timothy 4, or excuse me, 3, verse 4. But here we learn that the authority of the day-to-day -day management of the household is delegated from the husband to his wife, and she manages the household in subjection to his leadership. Back in Titus 2 and verse 5 says, The older women are to train the younger women to be workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. So the work she does at home is subject to her husband's leadership. It does not usurp it. Pastor John puts it this way, the man provides the resources through his labor and the woman manages them for the care of her husband and children. 
The man provides the resources through his labor, and the woman manages them for the care of her husband and children. That is her domain. And while I think those two passages are sufficient to make the point, I want to turn to one other passage that illustrates the reality in an exceptional way, and that is to Genesis chapter 3. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. So many of our sermons in this series on the nature of humanity and the roles of men and women have involved us in the study of the opening chapters of Genesis because it's there at the very beginning that we learn about fundamental truths related to mankind's nature and our identity and our proper functioning. In Genesis 3, the sin of Adam and Eve brings the God's curse into the world. And as he, he, and he curses the serpent, the woman, the man, and the creation itself as punishment for mankind's rebellion. But it is exceptionally interesting that God curses the man and the woman distinctly in ways that relate to each one's proper domain and sphere of responsibility. In verses 17 to 19 of Genesis 3, God curses the man with respect to his vocation as a worker of the ground. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Adam's natural pre-fall domain was to engage in breadwinning labor. He was to work the ground in such a way that it would yield produce capable of feeding his family. The burden for such provision fell to him, ultimately. And therefore, as a punishment for Adam's sin, God curses Adam within his natural domain as a man. The labor that would have been a pure delight and have brought only blessing will now be difficult and wearisome and tinged with a sense of futility. Well, how does God's curse come upon the woman? In verse 16, we see God curse the woman with respect to her domestic relationships. Look at it. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. And then God says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And we spoke about this. The woman's desire will be for her husband in the same way that sin's desire was for Cain in chapter 4, verse 7, namely to rule over him, to master him. The woman is not here cursed with the role of submission. That predated the fall. That was a blessing that predated the fall. No, she's cursed with discontent with her role of submission such that she desires to occupy her husband's role and rule over him in a way that will breed conflict over and over again. And so what do we observe? One writer puts it this way, In appointing the curse for his rebellious creatures, God aims at the natural sphere of life peculiar to each. Another says, God relates the effect of the curse respectively to that portion of his creation mandate, as already established in Genesis 1 and 2, that most particularly applies to the woman on the one hand and to the man on the other hand. In other words, God's curse identifies 
man's, the man's, natural pre-fall domain as working to sustain his family through breadwinning labor. And thus, it also identifies the woman's natural pre-fall domain as working to sustain her family through childbearing and nurturing labor, to be a helper for her husband and to bear and rear children, or, in other words, to be a worker at home. This is the sphere of responsibility that the woman was created to be oriented to. This is her natural domain, the place in which God has wisely designed for her to flourish most, to be most fulfilled, for her gifts and talents to be put to the greatest use for achieving the ends her Creator and Lord has designed for her. It is her home base. It is her ground zero for ministry where she employs all of her energy and creativity to make the home a place of rest and encouragement and support for her husband, a place of nurture and safety and fun for her children, and a place of welcoming hospitality for the people of God, and a place of ministry to unbelieving neighbors. Our unbelieving, satanic, anti-Christ culture through the so-called feminist movements of the 20th century has succeeded in despoiling women of the glory of their God-given role of being masters of the home. The feminist agenda has duped women into believing that being a homemaker is oppressive to them that it strips them of their rights to have a meaningful existence outside the home like men do. Meaning that's derived from pursuing a career and earning a paycheck. Keeping a clean and pleasant home, doing laundry, preparing meals. Ugh! Don't be a slave to your husband, the culture says. No, pursue your self-worth in the working world where you can be a slave to somebody else's husband, (laughs) where you can earn money, which you'll need to pay someone else to raise your children. So the daycare workers and public school teachers can train and disciple your kids in the same godless worldview that has managed to dupe you out of your birthright. It would almost be funny if it weren't so ridiculous But I say to my dear sisters in Christ, do not be deceived. Don't trade the glory of your God-given responsibility as a worker at home for the mess of pottage of the workaday world. And you say, glory? I change diapers and scrub floors. I break up fights between screaming children and struggle to teach elementary education. I make meals that people complain about only to then have to, clear, to clean a pile of dishes. Every day is the same. Where's the, what's the glory in that? And I just want to plead with every Christian mother within the sound of my voice that will listen to me. There is no more important work in the world than the work you do in raising your children at home to be faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish I had adequate words to express this. I don't. 
In the first place, children are hardwired by their creator to seek from you, their mother, the nurturing care and emotional affirmation that you are uniquely equipped by God to give them. By first of all, being present in their lives. By being that consistent source of stability and encouragement and affection that a nurturer gives. Fathers ought to be affectionate with their children, and certainly children do need and seek affection from their fathers. But it's no accident that in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul compares his exhorting and encouraging and imploring the believers to the way that a father would do with his own children, 1 Thessalonians 2.11, and then compares his fond affection and nurturing care for the church to a nursing mother who tenderly cares for her children. Verses 7 and 8. There's something manly about exhorting and encouraging and imploring, and there's something womanly about affectionate and tender care. And children need both. A child needs the nurturing affection of his mother, not his babysitter. But even beyond just that emotional impact, there is no one in the world who exerts a greater influence on a child's life than that child's mother. The hours and hours of a mother's instruction, training, uh, modeling as an example to follow, they're absolutely unparalleled. I recognize that my responsibility as the head of my household is to take a lead role in discipling my children. But it is the woman who Paul calls the oikodespotes, the master of the house. That's a mastery she exercises in subjection to her husband's authority, yes, as we've seen. But simply by virtue of the time that a father spends working outside the home to fulfill his God-given role as the primary provider, I recognize I will not come close, no matter how many sermons I preach, I will not come close to having the impact on my children's day-to-day development as my wife does. Moms, your kids learn the majority of the things they learn simply by watching you, by speaking and interacting with you. They learn what it looks like to live a life in submission to Jesus by watching your example. They learn the priority of prayer and Bible reading from seeing you make it a priority. They learn the value of diligence, hard work, and contentment from watching you go about your duties with joy. They learn what it means to live with conviction as they watch you put God's Word into practice. They learn about how a godly wife interacts with her husband, what marriage is to look like, how a godly woman employs her home to extend hospitality, how she prioritizes the needs of the people of God in service and fellowship, and on and on we could go. Paige Patterson, you might know the name, served as president of both Southeastern and Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and also for a time as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And his wife, Dorothy Patterson, made this observation about her role as a mother. She says, no one, not not, not teacher, preacher, or psychologist, has the same opportunity to mold minds, nurture bodies, and develop potential usefulness like a mother. 
And she is absolutely right. That's why there has been such a bitter war in this country over the educational system. It's why the teachers' unions aim to exert so much authority and why the public school systems want to have drag queen story hour in your elementary school library. It's because everyone knows that as go the children, so goes the nation. To educate a society is to influence a society, is to shape and mold a society. And so, ladies, do you want to change the world? Raise your children as disciples of Jesus Christ. Raise children who know Scripture. Boys and girls who bleed bibline, who you prick them and they bleed the Scriptures. Boys and girls who love and support the local church, who prioritize fellowship with the saints, who evangelize the lost, who conduct themselves according to the fruit of the Spirit, and most importantly, who passionately pursue communion with Jesus. Little boys and little girls who grow up into be young men and young women and into adults who understand that the greatest employment they could ever be employed in is to follow after Christ to pursue him passionately, to know him, to see him, to walk with him through the streets of Galilee, as it were, on the pages of Scripture, and to learn of him and to take his yoke upon them. If you devote yourself to the ordinary, sometimes mundane, sometimes stressful and thankless duties of being a worker at home, you will shape the next generation of the church of Jesus Christ. And you will shape the citizens of this nation. You will literally be the most influential people on the planet. Now you ask, Mike, are you saying that women are forbidden to work outside the home? No, that's not what I'm saying. But because of this emphasis, Scripture puts on the home as a woman's domain. That is to be her priority. The responsibilities that come with making and keeping a God-honoring home, serving as an encouragement to her husband, devoted to her children, as we've said, all of those responsibilities inside the home must be met and be able to be met before she would seek opportunities to work or serve outside the home. First things first, right? If after first things are done, there's time for second things, enjoy second things. Working at a, a Christian ministry like Grace to You or Children's Hunger Fund, a, a school or a hospital or even in a support role at the church, all of those are great things so long as it doesn't take you away from the work that Scripture prioritizes for you. If you can do more than your duty, wonderful. But if something causes you to fail to do your duty, you're out of step. Now, many times, work outside the home like that can be done after the children reach a certain age and the needs of the house aren't as great. Often, a young mom can be industrious, like the Proverbs 31 woman was, who contributed to the family's finances. We'll look at it a little bit later, but Proverbs 31:24 says she makes linen garments and sells them. Or verse 16, she considers a field and buys it, and from her earnings, she plants a vineyard. In other words, a woman is able to earn money while at home through some sort of business while not taking away uh, from her primary responsibilities. 
But it is exceptionally rare that a mother of young children is able to meet all the demands of managing a God-glorifying home while also working outside the home. Being a faithful worker at home is demanding labor, oftentimes more demanding than the work one does for a paycheck, which is why the Proverbs 31 woman, verse 17, girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. There is an appropriate feminine strength that a woman must cultivate for the work that she is called to do. And it's the rare case when work outside the home doesn't take her away from the duties of God-honoring homemaking. And you say, okay, but what about the single woman? Well, on the one hand, Younger single ladies ought to aspire to get married to, God, to a godly man, to have children, and to manage a God-honoring household, as 1 Timothy 5 says. But on the other hand, there are single women aspiring to marriage and motherhood, and the Lord in His providence has not yet seen fit to grant that gift. And before I go on, I do want to say that it is grieving to your pastors and leaders to know of many godly young women who desire almost nothing more than to honor God by fulfilling this role, but who are not pursued by godly men. And so, men, if you're a single man in Christ, hear this exhortation. Do what you must do. Become what you must become in order to be a godly husband to a godly young woman. There are so many women who buck against their God-ordained role as homemakers. So many. But what a shame for there to be so many in this church who long to embrace that role, but who were not able to walk in it due to the lack of discipline or initiative by the young men in the church, or in some cases even the older men in the church. So get after it, brothers. But to those sisters whom the Lord has not given yet this gift of family, yes, of course, it's biblically permissible for you to earn a living by working outside of your home. And you ought to do your work heartily unto the Lord. At the same time, while the Lord may not yet have given you a husband or children of your own, there is no doubt he has given you family. He's given you the brothers and sisters of your local church, He's given you spiritual children, those children of your brothers and sisters, whom it is your responsibility to love and care for and serve and sharpen and disciple in ways that are appropriate to Christian fellowship. And he intends, God intends, for the home you dwell in, whether it's a house or an apartment or whatever, he intends for your home to be an instrument of service to your spiritual family, a place of hospitality, a place of refuge and safety for those who might be in danger or in need, a place where Bible studies are hosted, where meals are shared, where spiritual conversations take place, and where prayer meetings are had. And a home used in that way requires homemaking. It requires, as one single woman put it, warm, comfortable, aesthetically pleasing surroundings. 
which means it still requires you to embrace your home as your domain as a woman. It still requires that you put into practice this command to be a worker at home. Well, just as the biblical woman's responsibility as a homemaker speaks to her domain, it also speaks to her duty within that domain. And so we come now, secondly, to her duty. And we find that in the same passage in Titus 2. So head back to the second chapter of Titus. We've discussed them briefly already. Titus 2 and verse 3 The older women are to be teaching what is good so that they may train the young women, verse 4, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home. And so as the biblical woman orients herself to her God-given domain, the home, the focus within that domain is on love. Because the life of devoted service that a godly woman is called to in being a worker at home can only be fueled by love, by the affection for God in Christ, by the Spirit that wells up into the action of benefiting those Christ has given us to serve. I'm going to say that again. That's what love is. The affection for God in Christ by the Holy Spirit that wells up into the action of benefiting those Christ has given us to serve. She is to love her husband and love her children. So a godly woman who's a worker at home is to see to it that she loves her husband. In our series on biblical manhood, we discovered that the husband is a lover. He is to exercise his headship in a loving manner, in the manner after the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ in his loving service of the gospel, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The biblical man is a lover after the pattern of Christ. Well, here in Titus 2, we learn that the biblical woman is also a lover, one who loves. And it's the same pattern that remains. It is Christ's sacrificial service of his people in spite of our ill desert, in spite of our sin, in spite of our flaws, in spite of our unloveliness, you are to love, ladies, the way that Christ has loved you. And so a wife's love for her husband must be sacrificial and in spite of his not deserving it. Pastor John comments about this love that is to be given from husbands to wives and wives to husbands. He writes, It refers to willing, determined love that is not based on a husband's worthiness, but on God's command, and that is extended by a wife's affectionate and obedient heart. Even unlovable, uncaring, unfaithful, and ungrateful husbands are to be loved. This sort of love of husbands and wives for each other involves unqualified devotedness and is a friendship that is strong and deep. And speaking from experience, I can tell you I know what it is to be a husband who is unworthy of his wife's love. And therefore, I know how gracious of a gift it is to be loved in spite of that unworthiness. And how the display of such undeserved kindness 
from my wife is not only a powerful motivation for my love and service in return to her, but also a motivation for me to press harder after holiness in my own life, to stop doing those things that make it difficult to love me and start doing those things that make it easier. I know what that is. And so, ladies, do you want a husband who is lovable? Then love him. Love him. But the kind of love that Paul calls wives to here isn't just gritted teeth, clenched fist, sacrifice. Like, you know, I guess I have to serve this ungodly mess of a man because God says, he told me to, and well, fine, I guess I'll do it. No, that's not love. The command to love your husbands is inclusive, ladies, of liking your husbands. It's not just about devoted service. It's about genuine affection as well. I understand that your husband won't always be likable, but you are commanded to cultivate an affection for him as his wife. And rather than nitpicking to find the things to be discontented with, you are to be diligent in spying out those evidences of God's grace at work in his life, where he's been making progress, for which you are able to offer him encouragement and in which you are able to delight. So you actually like him. I had this thought this morning. You're to be less of a prosecutor who's finding ways to convict him of guilt and more of a defense attorney, an advocate. Hey, Christ is our advocate before the Father when, we, when we, have, we give Him every ground, the Father, to cast us from His presence. All the evidence is in, and we are guilty, and yet we have an advocate who stands with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. And so, would you be Christ-like? Be your husband's advocate, defending him before the charges of his enemy and accuser. Not flattering him, not blowing smoke, not causing him to believe that he's better than he is, but to spy out those evidences of God's grace and to say, God's at work in you, rather than to spy out evidences of sin and say, what's the matter with you? Now, sometimes that's going to be a help. You can obviously, in, in an encouraging manner, make someone aware of their sin for their benefit. Just like a defense attorney might have to speak frankly with his client but it's done different than the prosecutor will do it. So this here, loving your husbands, liking your husbands, is not less than what Paul is commanding. And certainly, such love from a wife to her husband will contribute to a happy home. If the context is homemaking, you understand a wife's love is part of what makes her home. The haven of rest and support and encouragement for her husband that it must be. But that love will also express itself in her diligence to make the home in all the other ways that that requires. It's out of love for her husband that she'll be diligent to keep a clean and orderly house so that it truly can be a place of rest and refreshment rather than chaos and disorder. Out of love for her husband, she'll be faithful to use her gifts to employ their home as a means of extending hospitality to others, and so, and so, and so on and so forth. We can go on. Love is the engine for homemaking. 
And in similar ways, a godly woman who is a worker at home is to see to it that she loves her children. We spoke earlier of how the Scripture presents the woman fundamentally as a nurturer, and there is no more natural of an expression of that nurturing disposition than in a mother's tender and affectionate care for her children. There is a unique softness that a child ought to find in his mother. She ought to, con- to conduct herself with him in a way that makes him always confident in her sympathy and protection. But more than even that, Pastor John writes that a mother is to love her children, quote, in every way, practical, physical, social, moral, and spiritual, with a love that has no conditions and no limits, end quote. And I think the best illustration of that comes in Proverbs 31. So turn there with me to Proverbs, the final chapter of Proverbs, where you all will recognize this passage as Solomon's depiction of the standard of biblical womanhood. And we observe in these verses a picture of the duties of a, of a godly woman who loves her husband and her children and is a worker at home. First, look at verse 26. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. This is an expression of spiritual and moral love, both, of her, both for her husband and for her children. When she opens her mouth, she speaks what is consistent with the wisdom of the Word of God and the kindness that Scripture directs us to walk in. She is a counselor of her husband and a teacher of her children in the ways of the Lord, which means she is to know the Scriptures backwards and forwards, which means she is to be a student of theology and even church history backward and forward, to be a sage in the things of God not only in knowing them, but putting them into practice so that she can train her children to walk in the same way and so she can counsel her husband to live practically with all of the theoretical knowledge he may know. Second, we see her love expressed in her diligence to contribute to the economic well-being of the family. We spoke about that briefly earlier. Verse 13 says, She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. Verse 16 We read before, she considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. And again, verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. This speaks to the industriousness of the biblical woman. So far from the notion, well, the husband works and the wife stays home. The wife is a worker at home. She summons all of her creativity and giftedness, and finds ways to contribute to the financial well-being of the household. Now, she does not bear primary responsibility for that kind of provision. That falls on the shoulders of the husband. Nor does it mean that those endeavors are to take her away from the other household duties. But none of that means she sits around watching soap operas or being a busybody on social media all day long. The biblical woman loves her husband and loves her children by being a worker at home, even unto the economic blessing of the household in many cases. Third, you look at verse 15, which says, She rises while it is still at night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. 
This means that the godly homemaker takes primary responsibility for preparing the meals that the family will eat. It is the father's responsibility as the primary provider to earn enough money to be able to buy food. But Scripture seems to place primary responsibility on the mother for preparing healthy, nourishing meals to those she's responsible for. That is a way to love her husband and her children in a physical way by providing for their physical needs. Fourth, verses 21 and 22 speak of the homemaker's clothing of her loved ones. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Now, the mother is responsible to clothe the household. And, of course, that looks a lot different for families today than it would have looked in 1000 B.C. Today, it doesn't require weaving fabrics on a loom or washing clothes at the river. But I think a legitimate application is that the mom bears primary responsibility for keeping the children clean, clean, presentable, modest clothing. It doesn't mean that dad can't help out with the laundry, but that responsibility falls primarily to her. And given all of that, the Proverbs 31 woman, as I said earlier, is strong. Verse 17, she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. Everything that we just spoke about, all of that takes strength. It takes stamina. It takes fortitude. And we're told here that there is an appropriately feminine strength that the biblical homemaker is marked by. Now, it does not look the same as masculine strength, but it is strength nonetheless. A woman may be the weaker vessel, as 1 Peter 3, 7 says, but that's, that does not mean she is to be weak. She is to cultivate the strength of character and mind and body to be able to be a teacher and a counselor, to be a hard worker who contributes, to be the one who cooks and clothes and manages the household. And so it is no wonder that this section begins in verse 10 with the exclamation that the worth of such a woman is far above jewels. And that point is the first of two closing points of application. First, to those who struggle to believe that such a calling is indeed meaningful and significant, I want to assure you once again that it is. Dorothy Patterson, whom I quoted earlier, writes on this point, homemaking, being a full-time wife and mother is not a destructive drought of usefulness, but an overflowing oasis of opportunity. It is not a dreary cell to contain one's talents and skills, but a brilliant catalyst to channel creativity and energies into meaningful work. It is not a rope for binding one's productivity in the marketplace, but reins for guiding one's posterity in the home. It is not oppressive restraint of intellectual prowess for the community, but a release of wise instruction into your own household. It is not the bitter assignment of inferiority to your person, but the bright assurance of the ingenuity of God's plan for complementarity of the sexes, especially as worked out in God's plan for marriage. 
It is neither limitation of gifts available nor stinginess in distributing the benefits of those gifts, but rather the multiplication of a mother's legacy to the generations to come and the generous bestowal of all God meant a mother to give to those he entrusted to her care, end quote. And then another writer captures it quite helpfully when he says, every second of such life matters to God. Doxology is in the details. A woman who sacrifices her own free time, her serious intellectual and vocational interests, and her goals to care for her little children, make healthy and tasty meals for her loved ones, organize, manage, and clean a home, express support and love for her husband as he works hard to provide, and teach her progeny the word of God in all its fullness. Such an existence is more than a job conducted within the confines of a home. It is a vocation. It involves the full measure of a woman's gifts, abilities, talents, and it is not a lesser call than a prestigious out-of-the-home career. In fact, such labor is, is in general far more demanding than paycheck-driven work, for the work of child-raising and homemaking means the direct shaping of lives and even eternal destinies, end quote. And so no matter what the culture says, Mom, the ordinary work that you are doing day in and day out as a homemaker is extraordinary in significance. Its importance cannot be overstated despite the efforts of lisping preachers. And so I would say to you, love and embrace that role for the honor that it is. And don't listen to this God-forsaken apostate culture who would try to tell you any different. And then a second word of application goes to those who struggle to believe that such a calling is attainable. Well, we ended our last message here, and I think it's right that we end this one here, at well, here as well, and that's at the cross. Some of you hear Scripture's standard of biblical womanhood, and you're tempted to despair for how, fa how far short you fall or have fallen in this calling. And in a sense, it's right for you to feel that way. This is a lifestyle that is impossible to achieve in the strength of your own willpower. It can only be attained by the working of the Holy Spirit of God himself who dwells in you through faith in Christ and who faithfully applies all the riches of spiritual blessings that Christ himself purchased for you in his atoning death on the cross to apply them to your life as you walk in obedience to him. And so, my dear sisters, if the word brings conviction for your sinful failures, praise the Lord that the Lord Jesus comes not for the righteous, but for the sinners. Raise your eyes to Calvary's cross where your substitute bore every one of your failures in his own body, nailed them to the cross, and buried them in Joseph's tomb. Behold him there, the risen lamb, your perfect spotless righteousness and remember that while in heaven he stands no tongue can bid you thence depart from the holy presence of God himself think of what Jesus is for you he is if I can put it this way without being crass the ultimate homemaker he opens his mouth in wisdom he is the wisdom of God incarnate, the word from the Father, the great and long-expected prophet who declares God's word as he opens his mouth and people wonder at the gracious words falling from his lips. 
He works diligently. He, he's the one whose works of obedience are all our righteousness. The one who worked and worked and worked until he could work no more, till he stared wrath in the face and said, Father, if this cup could pass, let it pass, but not my will but yours. The one who gives food, the one who is the bread of life, the one who invites us to feed on him, to taste and see that the Lord is good, the one of whom it is said in the passage Mark read before us, they will drink the fill, their fill of your house, of the abundance of your house. They will drink their fill of the abundance of your house, Lord God. He's made a house for us. He's made us to dwell within his house rather than as slaves and as dogs who ought to be outside where the unclean things are. Clothing. Well, he has woven for us garments of salvation. He's wrapped us in the robe of his own obedience that is all of our righteousness in the courtroom of heaven. And, And as for being strong, His strong shoulders bore our sins up to Calvary until there was no wrath left, until the infinite flames of omnipotent justice that would would burn hot against you and me in hell forever were extinguished, never to be roused again. He has prepared a house for us. Ladies, all ladies and gentlemen, but especially ladies, look to that one. Not only as your substitute, but then as the perfect example who's done all of those things in a way that we couldn't dream of writing for ourselves. We couldn't have a better example. We couldn't have a greater forerunner. And so all that he is is true for each one of us, friends, man, woman, boy, girl, in every way that you and I have failed to live up to the standard that your father calls you to, your elder brother has obeyed perfectly then has satisfied perfectly and because you're united to him by faith alone the spotless robe of his obedience is draped across your shoulders and your stains are washed away in his blood so that despite your sins and failures you're forgiven and accepted by the father in the beloved and and it's on that solid foundation that i began speaking about when i started accepted justified, at home. It's on that solid foundation that Christ is yours not only for justifying righteousness, but for sanctifying righteousness as well. The power to obey his commands, no matter how horrifically you may have failed at them previous, is supplied by him as he works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so wage war against the, 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 the wickedness of your sin in the strength of knowing that everything he's called you to, he has purchased for you and then provided power for you to walk in. And to those who are outside of Christ, you may have this one. You may have this sovereign Savior who lived and died and rose again in the place of sinners, who accomplished righteousness and quenched the wrath of God for all who repent and trust in him alone for salvation. Sinner, confess your sins and failures to measure up. Turn from your sin and from yourself and find true life in Christ alone by believing in him for all of your righteousness 
And then you could enter into the house that he has prepared for you. Pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We give you every, every ounce of, of praise that our hearts, our weak and sinful hearts can muster. If there were, if there were tongues of angels that we could employ, we would do it. But we, we have the poor, lisping, stammering tongue that will one day lie silent in the grave. But then, even then, because you will have raised us, we will sing your praises and we would, we would ask for the tongues to do so now. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. We, we magnify your name for the gospel, for the good news that you have lavished on us of your grace and, and where we've failed, where we have broken your law and become your enemies. You have sought us out and pursued us, making us not only the possessors of righteousness, but members of your own household. And we pray that, that especially the ladies of our church would, would draw strength from that limitless fountain, would draw the, 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 the uniquely feminine strength to be all that you have called them to be as women. I pray that you would supply in your providence the opportunities for the many young women who are eager to serve in this way, to follow your calling. And I pray that you would send the young men and, and make these wonderful matches and unite men and women in marriage so that they would enjoy the grace of life and they would honor you in these roles in their fullness. And I pray that you yourself, Lord Jesus, would be better than 10 sons to everyone to whom the Father in his wise providence sends not these gifts. Would you be the, the great consolation of their heart and give them the strength to serve the church with all the fervor and joy that they would have loved to pour out on their families, that the people of God would be what you have given us to be, and that we would make melodies of praise to the name of our Savior. We pray that Grace Church would be a strength of these most basic foundational roles that you have given men and women to be in the midst of the darkness and corruption of a decrepit culture who would raise itself against the knowledge of God but which one day must fall to the coming king who rides with a sword coming out of his mouth robe dipped in blood ready to destroy his enemies we pray that you would speed the day if you're coming Lord Jesus and that you would draw all to yourself whom you have purchased that you may finally enter into your kingdom and get the fullness of which you are worthy of in the meantime I pray that you would get what you're worthy of from these frail, sinful brothers and sisters of mine and from me that as your church, redeemed, washed in the blood, clothed with righteousness, give us the strength to walk in that righteousness, to live in a way that makes sense of our position, to walk in the newness of life that you have raised us unto. We pray these things in your name, for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.